afternoon, ladies. Thank you all for being here this afternoon to study a portion of God's word together. You can be turning to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, and we're going to read that together as we begin our lesson. Matthew chapter 5, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus gave various instructions um, about a godly life. Beginning at verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Jesus' words in this context seem pretty extreme. When you think about the prospect of cutting off a part of your body and throwing it away so that you can be saved, that sounds horrific, really. But the prospect of being lost for eternity is so very much worse. Our topic this afternoon is guarding our hearts, and specifically guarding our hearts as it relates to sexual sin. Because this sin is so pervasive in our society, because we are so surrounded by it, we have to talk about these things within the body of Christ and the challenges that we face. This world is filled to the brim with illicit sexuality. It seems like almost every form of illicit sexuality is promoted, not just accepted, but promoted in the world that we live in. Addiction to pornography no longer means visiting places that you shouldn't go or receiving discreetly packaged items in the mail or going to the back room at the video store. Now people can struggle with this sin completely in secret. And nobody but them and God knows that there's a problem here. The devil has hijacked the most amazing means we have ever seen of sharing the gospel. And he has hijacked it in order to ensnare hearts, in order to destroy marriages and enslave God's people with sin, to exploit the most vulnerable people among us. These things may be easier to access today but they're not new. Every generation, every era that mankind has seen has faced the same struggle. This sin stems from human appetite. It may be more accessible and easier to do in secret, but this is no different than any generation has faced. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul talks about the things that were done in secret that were shameful even to speak about. And he was talking about the ancient Roman Empire. The things, if you were to study Roman history, the things that were accepted in their culture are astonishing. You would blush and be ashamed even to really dig deep into a study of ancient Rome. So how should we as Christian women, as God's children, guard our hearts while we live in this world, while we're surrounded by all of this? How do we guard our marriages? How do we guard our homes and our children in the midst of all of this? Well, the answer is simple. Not easy, but simple. 
It's not hidden in cryptic language. It's not one of the enigmas of the Proverbs that we have to really meditate on and untangle with our minds. It's really plain and simple, black and white, in the pages of your Bible and mine. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's as simple as it is. The practicality of it gets more difficult, and putting these things into practice But the reality is, if we walk in the Spirit, these things will find no place in our hearts and in our minds. In that context, Paul goes on to list and describe the sins of the flesh, the works of the flesh that we are to avoid. He starts with sexual sins, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lewdness. He progresses to religious sins, idolatry, sorcery, heresy. And then to sins of relationships, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, envy, and murder. Then he's going to address entertainment sins, if you might call them that, drunkenness and revelry. In discussing these things that a spiritual life will push out of our hearts and minds, Paul lists sins of the flesh, sins of the mind, sins of attitude, and sins of emotion. And he warns us that if we fail to walk in the Spirit, there will be a void in our hearts, a void in our minds, an opening, if you will, an unguarded place where these sins can take root. They can flourish and grow to the point that they become the defining characteristic of our life. Have you ever seen somebody whose entire life seems to be defined by a sin that they participate in. Maybe it's anger, unbridled anger, an outburst of wrath. Have you ever seen somebody that that just seems to be what they are, is a walking, ticking time bomb. You never know what's going to set them off. Almost any sin can overtake us to the point that it becomes that defining characteristic of our life. Walking in the Spirit in order to avoid fulfilling the lusts of the flesh is not just addressed in Galatians. Turn to the book of Ephesians with me. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul puts it several different ways in this chapter. In verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. In verse 15, he says, walk circumspectly. That's like you can picture an acrobat walking on a tightrope. Walk very carefully. But read with me beginning at verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to take our points from this section of scripture. Actually, let's begin at verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you want to be filled with the Spirit of God? Of course we do. Sometimes we're hesitant to talk about what the Bible says because there's so much false teaching and so much error being taught. But we shouldn't relinquish these passages because they're so often abused. I want to walk in the Spirit. I want to be filled with the Spirit. And the scriptures are going to tell me how to do that, how to live the Spirit-filled life. Look with me. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Living the Spirit-filled life, walking in the Spirit, walking in the light, walking circumspectly, 
is a life of worship. And that's what you see here. If you want to live a life that is guided by the Spirit, be a worshiper of God. Being a worshiper of God guards your heart and keeps you from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Consider Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3. When God took his people out of Egypt, he told them, you shall have no other gods before me. In Romans chapter 1, when God indicted his people, one of the counts against the Gentiles was that they worshipped the creature rather than the creator. And that when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 25. We have an appetite as human beings to worship. That appetite is a good and wholesome and healthy thing if it is directed properly. If it's not, it's very dangerous and destructive. What are some of the things that human beings worship in place of God? Bat that around for just a minute and throw out some ideas. What are some of the things that we see people worshiping rather than worshiping God? Anybody have any thoughts? I'm sorry? Worshiping self, that's a huge one. And that's definitely an element of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We put ourselves in the position of God. What else? Actors, famous people. We worship the very concept of fame and popularity as something that we idolize. Sports, sports figures, we put those in the place of God. What about money? Definitely one that we worship. Yes, ma'am. Money, absolutely. Very good point. Psalm 62 and verse 10, David said, Do not set your heart on riches when they increase. Uncertain riches are not something that we should trust in. Our topic, though, today relates more to the physical lust. And I want to talk about one that I think we, as women, probably struggle with. All of these could be present. Have you ever considered how much our society, and even we ourselves, worship love and the idea of love and relationships? And how much we put these things on a pedestal to the point that we are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. Who instituted marriage? Who instituted the idea of a romantic relationship between a man and a woman? Well, God did, of course. We understand that. But do we worship love in a way that God never intended for it to be worshipped? I believe we do. And I believe that this opens a door in our hearts and minds that often lust can come in and destroy us. Our culture magnifies love. If we consider sometimes the songs on the radio, have you ever listened? And this is, this is across every genre of music. When you listen to love songs, what do you hear in those songs? Very often you hear a man worshiping the woman he's in love with or a woman worshiping the man that she's in love with. Or somebody lamenting the fact that their love got away from them and their whole life is over and their world is crumbling because this thing didn't work out. We find worship in this way. The whole idea and the whole concept of romantic relationships within the world is that this is the pinnacle of the human experience. This is what it's all about. It's not to find your creator. It's not to have a relationship with him. No, it's to find your true love, whether it's your spouse or not. 
your, your destiny and the most important thing in your world is to find the person that completes you. Even Christian women can fall into this trap. We even sometimes allow ourselves to get into this. Now, I'm not talking about couples that are extra sweet, maybe even gagging their fruit, that can't say good morning, lover, without posting it on Facebook. I'm not talking about the ooh-gooh Jesus. I'm talking about Christians, Christian women, who treat their spouse as though their husband or their romantic partner is everything, as though all of their hopes and dreams in life and eternity are tied to this person. That's not God's intention for marriage. It never was. That's not a biblical perspective of marriage. God prescribes marriage as being a relationship of love and respect. He never intended for us to be the ultimate fulfillment of each other's dreams. That's not how he presents marriage to us. He presents marriage as being honorable, Hebrews 13 and verse 4. He presents a spouse as being a good thing in Proverbs 18 and verse 22. He says that marriage was ordained by him, Genesis chapter 2, but the over-magnification of marriage and married love leads to disillusionment. It leads to disappointment when a young lady gets married thinking that this man is going to be just her everything and her all, and she finds out that he's not perfect. She may find out that he is not even worthy of her worship because he's not, because he's a human being. He's worthy of her respect, which is what God told her to give him, her respect. Why, though, is it dangerous and what does it cause when we allow ourselves to fall in love with love and to worship love? What are some of the dangers in that? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? It'll leave you disappointed. It'll leave you craving. Yes, ma'am. Good point. So I don't know if anybody else. Yes, ma'am. It is vanity. It's passing. It doesn't last forever. Did you have something? Oh, I got you. <laughs> so tell me if anybody else has this problem. Okay, I get hungry but I don't quite know what I want. So I go into the refrigerator or the pantry and I munch on a little of this. Well, that wasn't it. And I munch on a little of that. Well, that wasn't it either. And pretty soon, I have taken in a whole bunch of junk that did not satisfy my cravings. When we put relationships, even marriage, God said marriage is holy, but when we act as if marriage is supposed to fulfill and satisfy everything about us, and satisfy our craving to worship, which should be directed at God, we can find ourselves looking for the right person and jumping from person to person and divorcing because that person did not satisfy the craving because they can't satisfy that craving. Only God can. When we put marriage on a pedestal, we're destined to be disappointed and to have a lot of disillusionment. If you believe that marriage and love are supposed to make you happy, they're supposed to fulfill your dreams, you are in danger. Because in your time of disappointment and heartbreak, 
Satan will come in in order to steal your heartbreak and to help you overcome this tragedy that you found when you found out that marriage is actually hard, that it is both the mountaintop of joy and the valley of despair, (laughs) that sometimes it's hard and sometimes it takes a lot of hard work to be married and that it's not all easy and fun and happy, happy, joy, joy. Anybody who's had parents that have stayed married has probably seen that marriage is a little bit difficult. They've seen some conflict and seen some things that had to be overcome. Human relationships are always filled with good and bad, and marriage is no different. The love between a husband and a wife is a beautiful thing. It is a holy thing. It is something that we should strive for, but it is not everything. And it is not a thing to be worshipped. If we are not happy and content and complete in Christ without a marriage or love or romantic relationship, we will not be happy or content or complete in Christ with a marriage, with a love relationship. And those relationships will crumble under the weight of our worship because they were not designed by God to be worshipped. Just like you see when we talk about movie stars and sports figures, why do they fall apart? Because they're human beings and they were not designed to be worshipped. These things crumble under the weight of worship. Only God is to be worshipped. Nothing is to be put in place of him. If we are to have hearts that are guarded against the sexual immorality that reigns in our culture, we have to stop allowing culture to tell us what relationships mean and where their value is and how we should think about them. And we're adept at doing that in areas where we want to. When you think about sexual immorality, there's whole communities of our society, whole segments of our society that define themselves by their sexual appetites. I am gay. I am transgender. I am LGBTQ. They define themselves in those terms, and we reject that. We say, no, you're not. You are a living soul, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 12. You are created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1. We reject those ideas in that area, but have we accepted our culture's claim that love relationships, intimate relationships, marriages, are the ultimate fulfillment, that they are the most important thing we can experience in life? Have we idolized our spouses, our marriages, so much that when we lose our spouse, we find ourselves bitter and angry and empty? Or when our spouse becomes unfaithful, we question the faithfulness of our God. Do we lose faith because of a marriage relationship? Because our spouse didn't do right? Where was your faith if that's the case? Was it really in God? The culture of relationship worship can bleed into the church. And I have to admit, it can even bleed into me. But if I want to walk in the Spirit, if I want to live a Spirit-filled life the way that the Scriptures tell me to, I will guard my heart against the works of the flesh by worshiping the Lord my God and serving him only, as Matthew said to the devil when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. As women, we are romantic creatures. That's part of how God created us. And we could be susceptible to placing these things above the God who created them. Secondly, go back to Ephesians chapter 5. 
you're not still there. The second thing that is presented to us in Ephesians chapter 5 is thankfulness. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of a Christian is a life of thankfulness. Thankfulness and holiness go hand in hand. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We talked a little bit already about Romans chapter 1, but there are a few verses I want to read here that connect unthankfulness and unholiness, and they're really important for us to see. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became foolish in their hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now drop down to verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for that which is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing that which is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. When you consider words like that, and you see the connection between thankfulness or unthankfulness in this case, and unholiness, it should be a warning. How thankful are you to God for everything that he has done for you? And how much does your thankfulness tie to the condition of your heart and whether or not your heart is guarded against the works of the flesh? Consider the state of the Israelites as they left Egypt. They cried out to God in the midst of slavery and oppression, and he heard their cry. And he rescued them from slavery, from Egypt, just as they had requested of him. He brought them out with a mighty hand, Exodus 32. What did they do when they came out of Egypt? What's that? But, right, exactly. They complained. They complained and complained and complained. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're tired. It was better in Egypt. Egypt where 80 years before, a policy of killing their children, their male children at birth, was enacted by the Pharaoh. It was better there, though. It was better than God bringing them out the way they asked. Now, connect some dots here. In Exodus chapter 32, the Israelites are found worshiping an idol. God brought them out with a mighty hand. He provided for them. He rescued them out of slavery. They did nothing but complain all along the way. And pretty soon they're worshiping an idol. And this worship is not bowing down on your knees. This would have been probably very lascivious, very lewd practices. It wasn't very long before their unthankfulness to God led them to a place of unholiness and impurity. That is what happens when we don't thank God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul connects unthankfulness and unholiness with Timothy. He warns him that in the last days, perilous times would come. Men would be lovers of themselves. We talked about self-worship. Lovers of money, 
boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving. That's not a very pretty picture of society and what happens in a society. A lack of thankfulness will leave an unguarded place in our hearts, just like worshiping the wrong things will leave an unguarded place in our hearts. Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 15, because the same connections are made there for us again. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. He connects several things here. He connects peace and worship and thankfulness and unity and ties them all together. Isn't that interesting? In Psalm 92 and verse 1, David said, It is a good thing to give thanks to the Lord. When you consider the church in Corinth for a minute, let's talk about Corinth and the Corinthian Christians. What do you know about the church in Corinth? There was division. They were a church that was filled with problems. If you go through those letters, you're going to find problem after problem after problem. What were some of their other issues? celebrating sin. There was sexual sin in the congregation, and they were proud of themselves for their tolerance toward it, and for how they were so peaceable about it. There was envy, division. There were legal problems, Christians going to court with other Christians. There were all kinds of problems in this congregation. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul says, God's grace should cause you to abound in thanksgiving. One of the prescriptions that Paul gave this congregation that was carnal-minded was to be more thankful. If there's carnality in your heart, in your mind, if the works of the flesh described in Galatians chapter 5 are present in your life, look and see how much thankfulness there is because that's probably leaving a hole in your heart. Fill your heart with thankfulness. Think for a minute about Daniel. And you can be turning to Daniel chapter 6. When you think about Daniel, what do you think of? Where did he live? Can anybody tell me where Daniel lived? In Babylon. How long did Daniel live in Babylon? Decades. A long, long time. He was a young man when he went to Babylon, and he was a very old man in the book of Daniel when we see him being cast into a den of lions. Okay, a lot of times the Bible class pictures or or the coloring sheets have a little boy, Daniel. He was not a little boy when he went into the lion's den. He was an old man by this point in his life. So here's Daniel. He is a captive. He's a Hebrew captive living in Babylon. He's not just transplanted to Babylon. He is living with the Babylonian nobility. He is living in the middle of all of the excesses and debauchery of the Babylonian kingdom. They had everything they could possibly want. How did this man, for decades upon decades, guard his heart and stay faithful to his God in that setting? Look with me at Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10. How did Daniel keep his heart? Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day 
and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Daniel was a thankful man. He grew up from a young age in these circumstances, and yet it was his habit to give thanks to God. Thankfulness was his habit, and thankfulness was also his guardian. This is what kept his heart pure in the midst of such terrible circumstances where anything he wanted to do was at his disposal. This man could have engaged in all of the impurities that were around him. He could have been enticed by all of those things, but his heart was so filled with thankfulness to God and worship for God that there was no room for the works of the flesh. It just wasn't going to be found in his life. If we would have pure hearts, like Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5, if we would walk in the Spirit, like Paul talked about in Galatians chapter 5, and live the Spirit-filled life of Ephesians chapter 5, and have hearts that are guarded carefully in the midst of the world that we live in, let us give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever, Psalm 107 and verse 1. Being worshipers of God, giving Him the glory that is due to His name, being thankful and having hearts that are filled with thankfulness to Him, provides a solid foundation for the next instructions that Paul's going to give us in Ephesians chapter 5. The next instruction is to be submissive. You thought we were going to get through a whole ladies' class without talking about submission. <laughs> Not so. The third instruction that we receive about being filled with the Spirit is found in verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Paul doesn't just mention this. The, the other two are mentioned in a quick verse, but his discussion of submission goes on well into chapter 6, around verse uh, 9 or so of chapter 6. He's going to engage in a lengthy discussion of submission. Now, a lot of times when we talk about submission, we zoom in on one particular facet of submission, and that is the husband and wife relationship, and that's an important part of submission. But that's not all that the Bible has to say about submission. We've probably heard before and talked about in lessons before that a woman who won't submit to her husband may not have a marriage problem. She probably has a spiritual problem. She probably has a problem between her and God. And that's because submission is a vitally important element of Christianity as a whole. And it is something that is required of every Christian. And it also is tied to our purity, to the guarding of our hearts against sin. This word is used many times in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul urges the brethren in Corinth to submit to the household of Stephanus and to everyone who labors for the Lord. His desire was that they have a submissive attitude, a submissive heart. Ephesians 5.22 and Colossians 3.18, wives are sub instructed to submit to our husbands. In Hebrews 13 and verse 17, we're instructed to submit to the leaders of the church. In James chapter 4 and verse 7, we're to submit to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, to submit to every ordinance of man. We should be the best citizens of every nation that Christians live in. But turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 
First Peter chapter 5 also gives us a discussion of submission and makes several connections that are really important. A lot of times we read verse 7 where it says, Casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. But we don't put that together with everything else that is discussed here. Let's begin reading at verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. God gives grace to the humble, the one who will submit themselves to him. Now, what do we know about grace from Titus chapter 2 and verse 11? Grace teaches us. God's grace teaches us. When we submit to God, we are simply acknowledging that he knows better than we do, that he is more capable of knowing what I need and what I don't need than I am. We are echoing with our very lives what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 10, 23. It is not in the person that walks to direct her own steps. If we will humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God, our hearts will be guarded. When God reserves sexuality for marriage, do we trust him? Are we willing to humble ourselves and to receive his instruction? Or do we think that our case is special? that our love is special, that nobody has felt the way that I feel about this man before. God says, this is my plan. And if we trust him, then we will obey him in this. When God warns us about the works of the flesh, fornication, adultery, uncleanness, lewdness, and lasciviousness, do we honor him in that and submit ourselves to him? Or do we toy with the works of the flesh? Do you ever watch a movie where adultery is presented as romance or lewdness is presented as comedy or fornication is presented as love? I have. I've laughed at it. I've sighed at it. I've cried. Am I toying with things that Jesus died to forgive? Am I making entertainment out of sin? And if I am, is my heart guarded or is it wide open for Satan to take advantage? These things affect our minds, and what we put in can be very, very dangerous. Proverbs 14 and verse 9 says that fools make a mock at sin. I don't want to be a fool in this. I don't want to leave my heart and my home unguarded by treating sin as though it is entertainment. As we close our time together, take your mind back to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. That extreme section where Jesus says, whatever you have to give up is going to be worth it. Even if you have to cut off your hand or pluck out your eye, he says, you do that in order to go to heaven. The sacrifices that we make in order to be faithful to God are worthwhile. If I never watch another movie, can I still go to heaven? Absolutely. If I never read another book other than the Bible, can I go to heaven? Sure. If those things are going to keep me from being pleasing to God, if they're going to leave my heart unguarded, like Judas left his heart unguarded and Satan entered his heart, if that's going to cost me eternally, do I really want to toy with those things? No, I really don't. 
that we have a promise from God that if we will walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you can't do both. Nobody can do both. When we take these struggles, when we take these things to our God in prayer, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 tells us that our hearts and minds will be guarded by Jesus Christ himself. That's what I want. I want to have a heart that Jesus stands watch over. And that means I have to walk where he walked. And I have to follow him and live in the light. Thank you, ladies, for your attention this afternoon. I pray that we will all take seriously the charge that we have to guard our own hearts, our children's hearts, our marriages, all of it. Will you pray with me as we close? Our holy and merciful Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that you have given us guidance, that you have not left us to find our own way, but that you have told us what we need to do. We pray, Father, that we would have the humility to accept your instructions, to submit ourselves to you, that our hearts would be filled with love and worship for you and thankfulness for your unspeakable gifts. We thank you, Father, for Jesus, for the sacrifice that he made so that we could have the forgiveness of sins when we stumble. And we pray, Father, that you would forgive us of our many sins and iniquities and that we would walk with you all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.